The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Daryl Davis is a middle-aged black man whose story you can find in the Netflix documentary, Accidental Courtesy. Daryl is is brought in as a guest on on a TV show that is interviewing families who are involved with a variety of racist groups, particularly the Ku Klux Klan. And so Daryl is a guest on the show as the expert, uh, um, somebody who's experienced racism. And so during this show, they're, they're interviewing kids and parents, family, family members who hate people who don't look like them. And so during this show, they, they choose to interview one, one, a young girl by the name of Erin. And what they find out as they interview Erin is that when Erin grows up, she wants to be part of the KKK just like her parents. That she thinks this is a worthy goal and aspiration. Now at some point after the show... Daryl would come to find out that Aaron's father got arrested and sentenced to 10 years in a federal prison. And so when this happens, Daryl decides he's going he's to track down this young girl Aaron's parents' phone number. And so Daryl searches and finds Tina's phone number. This is the woman who is married to the white supremacist who is now in prison. And so Daryl gets on the phone and talks and, and gets Tina on the phone. As soon as Tina finds out who is calling her, she begins to curse Daryl out on the phone. Imagine using every racial slur that she can come up with. And finally, once she stops cursing him out, Daryl takes a moment to speak. And then explains to her that he's going to fly to Chicago to drive her and her girls to Marion, Illinois, the site of the federal penitentiary where Aaron's dad is imprisoned. No one in the KKK ever did that for them. See, for 30 years, Daryl has been on a one-on-one mission to befriend people who hate him the most. To pick and choose members of the KKK and and to go out for coffee. To listen to their hate, to, to, to bear through the slurs, and to sit down with person after person after person. Not to correct them, but to befriend them. To patiently bear through the hate. And over the course of 30 years, what he's experienced is many of them, not all, but many of them, end up handing their robes to Daryl, because their lives are changed because of this unexpected love that they didn't deserve, that it changed their heart. Now, there's something profound about that kind of love, a love that shows up in an unexpected way and, and, and shows itself to somebody who clearly doesn't deserve it. A love that shows up in the midst of hate-filled, evil kinds of emotions, yet befriends somebody who clearly shouldn't be befriended. A love that instead of ignoring or fighting against somebody, chooses to sit down for coffee. A love that when listening to the hate and hurt over the phone, just says, shut up, because we're going to go see your dad. That love is the same kind of love that we see God show to us. Because God loves the unlovable. 
It's unearned, it's undeserved, it's unusual, it's surprising, and it shows up in the midst of our hate-filled, God-rejecting rebellion. And so as Jesus listens to us make excuses and say hurtful things, he takes it all in and says, listen, I'm going to take you to your Father. God's grace does for us what no one else can or would do. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1747. Today we're wrapping up our series, Here We Still Stand. And so what we've done throughout this series is we've honored the history, knowing that 500 years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther um, re-emphasized some important truths that he saw that the church drifted from. And because of that, the course of history in the Christian church is forever changed. And so what we are doing in this series is saying, Here We Still Stand on those same truths. These truths that Luther reminded us of and the truths that the disciples started the Christian church following. And now what makes the Reformation so significant is not Martin Luther, but it's Jesus. Because the Reformation was all about Jesus and the Reformation still is all about Jesus. And so what we've talked about throughout this series is that these truths shape and push us forward in a new Reformation in our own day. That God's grace is still central. That God's grace is still surprising, it's still unearned, right? God still loves the unlovable. And it's that grace which is central to everything we say and do as Christians. And and as Christians, we we still believe that the Bible is true. That, That God's word still is true. And so it still guides and shapes us, it still speaks to us. And so we still trust that God gives us his very word and that very word still shapes us. And we still believe that God calls us to love and serve our neighbor. Whoever they may be, wherever they may be, God places us in the midst of relationships. And those relationships matter. Because God has placed us in them so that we might love and serve. And so what Paul reminds us of is what lies at the center of the Christian message. Which just so happens to be the same text that would change it all for Martin Luther. That as Luther studied this text, he would, a light bulb would go off as he understood that this is what lies at the heart of the scriptures and of the church. I'll begin in verse 16. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This text is a simple and clear description of what is the priority, of what is most important when we look to the word of God. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's this news, this promise that is at the center of it all. Now Martin Luther wrote, wrote specifically about this text and, what, what, and the challenge for him and what it did for him when he, when he said this. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, or in our translations, the righteousness of God. 
Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have to gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw that law meant one thing and gospel another, I broke through. That as Luther read this text, he couldn't wrap his mind around this idea of righteousness and justice. That how could, could a perfect, holy, just, righteous God love somebody as screwed up as him? And he even said, that, right? he even said I was an impeccable monk, but he said, I, I know what was in my heart. And so how could this righteous, holy God love somebody like me? And then, and then suddenly it all clicked. Because when I saw that law meant one thing and the gospel another, I broke through. That when he understood what Paul pointed to, the the gospel, it changed him. So we are in need of a breakthrough. That in our own day, the church continues to be in need of, of that same kind of breakthrough. To know that the law means one thing and God's good news another. And see, we all come in here with different walls that we build up. See, maybe some of you are here and you're a guest, and so somebody invited you out to lunch and they said, oh, surprise, we're going to church first. And so you're here and you're like, I don't know if I want to hear this thing. I don't know if I buy this whole thing. And so you have all these walls up. And what I would suggest is maybe what we need is something to break through all of that. Or maybe just life is so busy, like so your mind is always racing of what you have to do next. You have to do this and this and this, and this is stressing you and this is worrying you. And, and so what we need is we need something that can break through the noise of this world and find you right where you are. Or maybe you're just here and you're confused. Like you've heard it all, you've read it, you've studied it, but you still have questions and you just don't know what to think of it all. Or maybe you're ready to be done with it all. And we need something that breaks through all of that and, and, and so that God can speak to you right where you are to give you the thing that you need the most. Or maybe like me, right, you, you read the, and study the scriptures and so you get all this information. And at times it becomes information that fills your head. But you need something to break through to get it out of your head and into your heart. That is not just intellectual assent, but it's trust. It's belief. It's, it's a faith that is bigger than some doctrinal statements, but it actually shapes and guides and molds your life. See, what we need is a breakthrough. And the thing that, that Paul says will break through is the gospel because it is the power of God that is more powerful than whatever walls that you have built up or experienced. And it's God's good news that will break through to right where you are. And so Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. See, if there is one thing that the church can offer that the rest of the world can't, it's that gospel. It's that promise, that news. 
But here's the thing. When we, look, when we look at the way the world experiences Christianity, the perception that people have, what people experience when they inter- interact with Christians or when they hear about Christians, I think the last thing that most people think about is good news. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you've heard the word evangelical associated with something good? The word evangelical actually means people who follow the good news, like people who believe in the good news. Yet the thing that most Christians are known for is what they're against, not not the person they follow. And so what would happen if we had a breakthrough so that God's church was known for being about the good news? That it was about people who believed that God showed up and gave himself to them. Now, I think the difficulty with this is that many, many churches, ha- like they, they, understand, they know the gospel practically, but when it comes to how they look at the church and how they look at what Christianity needs, is they begin to believe that what people really need is they just need different advice. That if only they can correct the moral, the moral wrongs of the culture around them, if only they can fix the marriages of the people in their congregation, if only they give them the, the right steps, the right advice, then things will get better. That just if they tell them, just do this and don't do this. And it's not that those things are bad things, but what often happens is people look at the state of the Christian church and the brokenness and believe, well, if only I double down on the law, well, then we can fix the problem. But the thing that the church needs the most is not the commands, it's the promise. The promise of what God does for them. We don't need good advice. We need good news. I mean, look at our world. Where you turn on the news, you, go on, you, you read the articles on social media. It doesn't take long to, to, to be able to point out that something's broken in our world. Shootings, politics, hate, racism. And, and, and get this, we have more access to information in our day and age than ever before in human history. I don't think information and advice is what's lacking. Because we can get more advice, better advice. There's been more research than ever before in human history. And the problem still remains. Maybe the brokenness doesn't need better advice. It needs better news. The problem is that we need something more powerful than instructions. We need something that does more then give us steps. See, see, good advice is really just good instructions. Now, it's not that it's bad, right? It's still good advice. It's still helpful. But if you're like me, instructions always lead to the same kind of problem. Where you, you, you follow the instructions and you always end up with a pile of pieces left over. Right, so you have pieces, and you're frustrated and confused, or you almost finish, and then you realize you have to take the whole thing apart to start over. Right, it's why when I go to Ikea, right, my heart begins to race, because I know I'm going to take home this tiny box that somehow has a p- giant piece of furniture in it, and I have to follow three pictures that somehow lead to this piece of furniture. And in the end, I'm just asking myself, is it going to stay together? <laughs> and, and here's the, the thing about instructions. And I'm sure the designers of the instructions are good and well-meaning, but it leaves me frustrated and confused. Like, I I looked up some instructions online of how to change a clutch in your car. 
I don't know why you're laughing. Of course I'd be good at this. Um, step one says put your car in a secure position. I think I could do that. It says use a car jack to raise the front end of the vehicle. So far, so good. But make sure you put the jack below the oil pan to support the engine of the car. I'm not sure where the oil pan is. I think it's underneath somewhere. Um, Step two, and I don't even know if my car has a clutch. That's besides the point. Um, get, step two, get the transaxle ready for removal. It says, to make it easier, un unhook the clutch cable and the positive battery cable. Step three, unbolt the engine mount. It says, you need to undo at least one engine mount to get the transaxle mount. Uh, to get the transaxle mount out. I didn't even know that there were more than, than one of those. And so, so here, here's the point. We could go on and on, but it doesn't matter how clear and cr accurate the instructions are. The instructions don't help you do what the instructions suggest. And here's the thing. The Bible often gets treated the same way. It gets treated as a book of instructions. It's treated as a manual with some, uh, uh, something with thousands of pieces. And so we bring the Bible to the problem to be solved, and we end up frustrated because we tried. We tried really hard, but we still have pieces left over. Some people have even described the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. And now, and now I understand the intention, but if we see the Bible only as instructions, we miss the point. And it's not that the Bible doesn't have instructions. The Bible does have instructions. The Bible has very good instructions for what the best possible, what, what the full, fullest possible life looks like. But the, but the point is, right, when the Bible gives do this, don't do that, when the Bible suggests how to love, when to love, where to love, the instructions, the commands don't make it possible for you to do that. Right? This is why many of you have come to church and you've done the whole God thing and you've been frustrated because you filled your notes with how to fix your marriage, how to be a better parent, how to be better financially well off, how to have more content and joy and satisfaction and you went to work and you, and you still had pieces left over. Because while the instructions are good, the instructions don't make you capable of doing it. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he is pointing us to is to the one thing that has the power to change us. And so the instructions are good. The advice is good, but it's the gospel solely that has the power. It's the gospel that sets apart the message. And at the heart of what I believe is a modern reformation are people being captivated and drawn into that promise. It's, it's not a people who have all the right instructions. It's not a people who have all the answers. But instead, people who have been given a promise that God has given himself to the people who just can't get it right. See, here's the challenge. See, if you focus on changing behavior, behavior rarely changes. And so at best, you might, you might get some temporary change. But you don't get the changed heart where you don't get a heart that loves the law, a heart that desires to do what is right and what is good and what is best. But if you focus on the good news, it changes who a person becomes. 
See, what we need more than anything else is the good news. Because it's the good news that changes who we are. It's the good news that leads somebody who is hate-filled to hand over a robe. Because it's that kindness that the scriptures say, God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so it's that good news that changes the kind of people we become. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that is that promise. That Jesus shows up in the midst of your hate-filled religion. And he says, we're going to see your father. It's Jesus offering himself, saying, all right, I will do for you what no one else could do for you. And I will give myself in ways that no one else will. And so Jesus listens to the excuses, to your efforts, to your self-justification, and tells you, be quiet, because he is going to give you what none of those things can. And so Paul says that this gospel, this promise, brings salvation to everyone who believes. See, God's grace doesn't discriminate. It doesn't base itself on goodness or badness. It doesn't pick and choose based on worthiness, position, or power. God's grace comes for the worst of the worst. And it does the unthinkable when when it's offered to you for free. When Jesus befriends the unlovable. Now God's word is how we know this. It's, how, it's why we believe it. In Hebrews chapter 4 actually says about God's word. That, this, that God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. The book of Ephesians describes it as being a part of the armor of God, specifically the belt of truth. Now what's interesting about this is Paul is very specific about the belt of truth because he understands that God's word is doing something. That it's doing something in you. And so he doesn't say the breastplate of truth. He doesn't say the shield of truth. But he says the belt. And so the belt is the girdle, right? It protects below the waist. And so the reason he's saying that is he wants us to get that the Bible is doing more than something up here. But, it, but it's doing a work deep down within us. That he wants the Bible to be more than facts. More than doctrinal statements. To be what we would consider heartfelt belief. Or what, what scriptures might describe as being, getting down to your guts. Getting down to the belt. Because Paul wants us to understand that God's word does something to us. And we're good at checking our messages, right? We check our email. We, we check our phone as soon as it vibrates. Um, but, but what if we actually believe that God actually had a message for us? What if we actually believe that God wanted to speak to us, that he wanted to say something to us? Well, like what would happen if we actually believe that God gave us his word and he wanted to say something to you today? So what if the Bible was more than good information and instead it worked on us? See, I don't know about you, but I know myself, often I will go to the Bible like it's just more information I need to know. And so I'll have my Bible time here, or I'll, read, or I'll read the Bible when I'm preparing something, and then I go and live my life. And although I believe the Bible to be true, I don't live like it were true. Like I relegate it to a certain time and period, and it doesn't affect the way that I love other people, the things I say, the things I do. 
But what if we let God's word do what it was meant to do? What if we let God's word work on us? Like, what if we let it cut where it needs to cut? What if we let the Bible expose the things that need to be exposed? And maybe for some of you, like, that's what's happening in the moment as we, as we simply talk about God's word, right? Maybe it's exposing something. Maybe it's calling something out that, that God wants to speak to you, and maybe you're not listening. See, I have a feeling that just as in the Reformation, as people had access to God's word, if we, although we have access, if we actually read God's word and let God's word do its work on us, it would change the kind of people we become. And if that were to happen, we would be the kind of people that love in the way that we talked about last week. Last week, Pastor Paul talked about that, we, that the relationships that we have matter and that God calls us to love and serve our neighbor. Now, what makes that difficult is we don't choose our neighbor. Right? God simply places us in different spheres of influence to love and serve our neighbor, whoever they may be. And so it's not easy, yet it's precisely what God calls us to. And so as God's word does a work on us, it will then lead us to love and serve the people around us. In John 13, verse 35, it says, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Can you, be, can you imagine that? That people know you're disciples of Jesus, that you're following Jesus because of your love for them. And so your love for your children, your love for your spouse, your love for your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members. Right? Imagine if people knew you were a follower of Jesus simply because of how you loved and cared about them. See, when we think about what a reformation looks like in our own 21st century, it is made up of the grace, truth, and love that God calls us to. That God's grace is still central. It's not changing. Because we still need good news and not good advice. And the Bible is still true. That we still need God's word to do its work on us. And God still calls us to love people. And so we still stand on those truths. And what would it look like if we loved our neighbor like we have been loved? If we befriended our neighbor like God has befriended us? See, because when it comes to the way we look at the world, it can be a bit difficult. Because it's easy to love the people you choose to love, but it's not easy to love the people that God calls you to love. Right? It's easy to love people who sin like you, who look like you do, who hang out with you. But it's not always easy to love the people that God is sending us to. Because sometimes they don't look like you. Sometimes they don't think like you. Sometimes they don't sin in the same ways that you do. There are three options that I think there are when it comes to how we choose to engage with our culture. So there's no question that culture around us changes. And in fact, any group of people always have a culture. And so there's American culture, there, there's Christian culture, there's political cultures, ethnic cultures, um, cultures within their own individual communities. And so whenever it comes to engaging with culture, there are a few options that we can consider. Some of which are bad options, others of which are good and some are bad at certain times and good at other times, and some are simply neutral. And so the first option would be we can embrace culture. 
This is what I would suggest is the most common attitude people have towards cultural changes. They simply embrace, embrace them and go along with them. Whether you're Christian, non-Christian, something changes and you say, all right, it's better to go along with what, what, how, the way things are changing than to do something different. And th so that can be good, that can be bad, that can be neutral. Right? You can embrace a technological change that allows you to communicate in a way you didn't before. That can be a good thing. It can be a neutral thing because it's just different than what you're used to. Or it could be a negative thing. The culture could progress in, in, a, in a different moral direction than maybe what God says is right and good and true. And so what most often happens for the average person is simply, all right, things change, I'll go along with it. And if those changes conflict with what I know to be good and true, um, I then have to wrestle with either, I, either what's good and true must no longer be good and true, or, or I, I just can't apply it anymore. Or we, we do what many of us are tempted to do, and that would be the second option, would be we can avoid and fight against culture. Now, I would suggest that the second option, although at times might be necessary, would be the temptation that many of us do in the church that we shouldn't do. And so what happens, many of us will we'll deal with this tension of, all right, do I embrace culture or do I not go along with culture? And so, so our solution becomes, all right, well, I'll avoid culture. And so I, I step back here and I, we huddle up. Right, we get together in our little circle and, ma and make sure we protect ourselves, keep us pure. And then as culture marches and marches and marches and gets closer to our little circle, we figure out our, how are we going to fight back. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's never a time to stand up for truth and what is right and what is good. That, that's not the suggestion. But what I would suggest is sometimes we circle up and avoid culture and fight against culture, but we don't know anybody outside of our circle. And so what will happen, and we experience this in all different spheres. It's political, it's spiritual, it's personal. And so what will happen is something will happen, a tragedy, like a shooting will take place, and people, what they immediately do is they'll, they'll circle up. And they don't look for how they can help. They simply say, all right, let, let me take my place in the battle line. Let me get ready to fight. So something will happen, and a, con a conversation about race will come up, and so people will circle up and, and, and say, all right, how do I get ready to fight? Not, not how do I move towards reconciliation? How do I push back? How do I fight what culture is doing to me? And so what, what happens here is people isolate themselves into the corners for battle, and they ignore the person who needs to be loved. Because if John 13 tells us they will know we're disciples by our love, we can't love one another if we avoid one another. And so there are certain things, yes, you might need to avoid. But if you want people to be loved by you, they need to be known by you. If you want people to know what the church thinks about God, if you want people to know what the church thinks about their race, if you want people to know what the church thinks about is best for their family, for their marriage, if you want people to realize that what you believe about the Bible is true, yet you still love people like them, you need to actually know people like them. Which means we can't isolate ourselves and we need to simply look for where are the places that God has placed me within circles of relationships with people who aren't like me. 
Who are the people that I work with who don't think like me, who don't act like me, who, who, and how can I know and love them? Which leads us to what I would suggest is the best of the three options. And that third option would be we can influence culture. See, I win the Reformation happened. What the reformers would push people towards is that whoever you are, regardless of your position, regardless of your family, regardless of what you had, that wherever you are, God called you to love and serve your neighbor. And in our world, whether you love the culture around you or whether you are afraid of the culture around you, what God calls you to is to influence the culture around you. And the way that happens is not by fighting for right and wrong, but by fighting for the hearts of people. Because what changes a person's heart is the grace and mercy of God. That God's grace does a work on someone. And it changes the person that they become. And as people are changed, so also the culture around us will change. Our world will change. Because what happens is God's kindness, which is shown through you, leads people to repentance. And so your hate-filled white robe gets handed over. And in return, you are clothed in the righteousness of God. And as you are clothed in Christ, God's spirit creates in you a new heart. A new heart that loves and serves the world around you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have given yourself to us. That you love the unlovable, that you forgive the unforgivable, that you do what no one else can do for us. Remind us of that grace that meets us where we are, that gives to us when we need it the most. Jesus, forgive us when we fail to love the people you call us to love. Remind us of your truth. Do a work on us by your word. And help us to love people so that when people know us, that they would in turn know you. That our friendship with them would lead to their friendship with you. To a friendship with the God of the universe who made all of this and who gave all of himself for them and wants what's best and good and right for them. Jesus, help us to be a people who believe that who are changed by grace, who are led with truth, and who love the people you sent us to.